Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-449 of the Run Run Live podcast. Are you hungry? Are you feeling a bit maybe porky after this long winter of our discontent? Well, that's good, because today, Rachel, my nutrition coach, and I, we talk about how to tackle that spring nutrition plan and the do's and don'ts and some simple things that can lead to success. In section one, I'll walk you through a long tempo run. In section two, I'll talk about tall birds stabbing frogs. And it's been an interesting couple of weeks since we last spoke. I was supposed to be wrapping up two weeks of some pretty hard training volume this week. I was going to be doing another three-hour run on Saturday and another run on Sunday, but I seem to have tweaked something in my left knee, running hill repeats on Friday night. So yeah, taking some time off, probably only a couple of days. And that's the danger of doing high-effort, high-impact workouts, on, especially on tired legs. Eventually something gives up, something just stops working. The benefit is, if you get through these workouts, you have big improvements in your fitness and your capacity to race. If you get through, that is. So I was hoping to get through this week and hit all my workouts, but the old body is talking to me, and it's telling me that I'm not stretching enough, I'm not that I'm doing too much too fast, and I'm not giving myself enough time to recover. And it's been very challenging this winter and coming into the spring now because my job is taking up too much time. Too much time in the mornings, too much time in the evenings that I would normally have for my workouts. And I don't complain much. I focus on getting the workouts done. But this leads to two things that raise the risk of injury. And the first is the weather. I can't control the weather. And I do believe there is no such thing as bad weather, only soft athletes. But this means that I'm throwing some extra work at my body because it's having to deal with the snow and the ice and the trails and the slippery roads. And second, because by the time I get out to do my workouts these last couple of weeks, it's late. And I'm 
I'm drained emotionally and physically. And and that's important because for these bigger, harder workouts, you really need to be able to bring your mental A game. The quality of the work suffers if you just show up exhausted, right? So I've been skating on thin ice, pun intended, for a few weeks now, and it caught up with me. I don't think it's serious. There's no swelling or aching. It's just a sharp pain when I put weight on the flexed knee. You know, think about uh, if you did a lunge on that side, that's where it hurts, right there, that weight bearing. So instead of my long run in the freezing rain on Saturday, we'll be uh, talking to you. Had a great email. Every once in a while, you get these emails from the past. Had a great email from our old friend, Colin, friend of the show. And those of you who have been with me for a while might remember Colin, who did all the running song parodies, the parody songs. And he told me that someone with some other running podcast had found the old songs and and had interviewed him about the songs. And I remember running in Seattle with Colin when my wife and I were out there on vacation, maybe eh, 2013. That's the place with the troll under the uh, underpass by the beach there. Yeah. So I told him that I had just watched the Mutt the Hoople documentary on YouTube and had a new song idea for him. And it's to the tune of all the young dudes. But the parody would be about a runner who left some gels in their gear bag in the trunk of their car. And the gels exploded all over their running stuff before a race. And it's called All the Old Goose. And it would go something like this. All the old goose stuck in my shoes. Banana goose stuck in my shoes. It's a, I'm no Ian Hunter, but it's a guaranteed hit. So the weather is turning here. We got a bit of a melt, which means the trails will go from snow to ice to mud, alternatively until the end of April. And I'll be honest, I've been getting the anxiety as much as everybody else during this house arrest. There are some days when I just don't want to show up on Zoom or talk to anyone, but I have to. And these long days, where basically all I do is roll out of bed, work all day, go for a late run, read for a few minutes, fall asleep, and do it all over again, feel like you're on that hamster wheel, right? And by the time I get back from my run, it's after 8 o'clock at night, I'm asleep by 10, so that's it. That's your day. On a positive note, the days are getting luxuriously long now. The sun's up at 6.30 a.m. and sets after 5.30 p.m. Yeah, if I didn't have a standing call at 5 o'clock at night, I might be able to run the daylight. (laughs) And I'm getting plenty of sleep, probably averaging more than eight and a half hours. I don't have time to do anything harmful or stupid, stupid, so, you know, there's that. (laughs) Too busy to hurt myself. Well, apparently not. It's in situations like this, that we endurance athletes, we shine, we have this advantage. We can look at this life like a marathon or an ultra, and we can appreciate that the sucky days, even if we are stringing a lot of them together in a row, we can stand back from it and realize that all we have to do is keep moving through that suck, right? All we have to do is keep going with consistency. Even when the joy and the enthusiasm may leave us, Consistency and perseverance will overcome any obstacle eventually. So don't be downtrodden or disheartened, my friends, in this winter of our discontent. Just keep showing up.
And if you can show up with a smile on your face, that's even better. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The long tempo. Getting comfortable with your discomfort. The long tempo run is a lot like life. You work on yourself until you have a good capability, good capacity, and then you take that capability to the edge, and you see how long you can hold it. And running at the edge takes the sharpest form of discipline. It's easy to run slow. There's no pain. You're well within your capacity to do it. You're not even close to the edge. And it's also easy to go all out, to spend everything in a sprint. There's no discipline there. There may be pain, but it is brief and mindless. To run tempo, you need a mental hardness. You need the strength to be able to go to the edge and hold it. Like holding your hand on a hot stove, just short of burning, but forcefully uncomfortable. Long tempo. That's where the racer lives. That's where the professionals live. It's race pace or better for an extended time. And in this way, you learn what racing feels like. You learn where your failure point is, both physical and mental. And this is a great, great skill, a great life skill, to be able to go to the edge and hold it, to be able to spend time in that discomfort zone. At first, when you get there, it's merely... A question of survival. How long can you hold the effort, the pace, before breaking? And then it becomes a management issue. How do you manage that effort in that zone successfully? And then finally, it becomes a place to live, a place to savor. You become at home in the discomfort zone. You relax into the effort and the pain. And that discomfort and pain starts as an assault on you but you eventually cross the barrier and it becomes part of who you are and what you do. Something you own. Something you're at home with. And that's a superpower. <laughs> the, so let's talk about the long tempo in practice. How does this work? Well, in general, a good tempo run consists of a warm-up, a tempo segment, and a cool-down. And the tempo segment can either be done by time or by distance. The distance or time you commit to the tempo segment will be based on your ability and where you are in your training and what your goal race is. For example, if your target race is a 10K, you might have a 3- or a 4-mile tempo. If your target race is a marathon, it might be an 8- or a 10-mile tempo. If you're a professional, it might be a 20-mile tempo at altitude, but that's another story. You can program these into your smartwatch. So if you're doing it by pace, though, make sure that the pace range is pretty big, like plus or minus 10 seconds, or else your watch will be nagging you all the time. So you warm up for a couple miles, then you ease into that pace, which is 5 or 10 seconds per mile faster than your race pace. And you hold that pace for the tempo distance or the time. And it doesn't matter whether or not you have a hilly course or a flat track or a trail. You want the terrain that you're training on, that you're doing the tempo on, to be similar to the terrain of your target event. And you can absolutely do tempo in the trails. You just do it by effort level instead of pace. 
And while you're in that tempo, you focus on your form, you listen to what your body is telling you, you feel where the constraints are as you work your way through that time. And you may find that breathing is your constraint. You should be breathing, but not struggling for breath. If you're struggling for breath, then focus on that. Focus on that breathing. Get those big inhales through the nose and the mouth. Expand that whole chest and abdomen. Feel that breath and then blow those breaths out with intention. And practice breathing fully with intention and get into a nice comfortable rhythm. But you may also find it's your legs that are the constraint. Or maybe it's a certain muscle that's fatiguing. And again, try to relax those muscles and fix your form. Focus on running lightly. And that's a great mantra when you're struggling through some tempo. You say to yourself, run lightly. Fast turnover, hips forward, upright, light feet. So it should not be a struggle. I mean, tempo's not all out. It's about 80 to 85%. You can fight it for a bit, but if your form breaks, stop and reset. If speed work is part of your normal training, these workouts won't be that hard. This is, again, maybe an 8.5 on the 1 to 10 scale. What you're practicing with tempo is racing. You don't want to practice struggling along with bad form, so you want to practice running at or close to your edge with good form. If your form starts to break, then you need to back off a little bit until you can sustain the effort with good form. And my experience is that you tend to go out too fast in these tempo runs, and it takes a while to figure out what a sustainable effort or pace is. It takes practice, so don't get discouraged. And if you've never done this kind of work before, it will take a few workouts to get used to it. You may be sore the day after. You may have to take walk breaks initially. It's okay. Take a moment. Shake out your legs. Catch your breath. See if you can settle back into that tempo at a more sustainable pace. And I'll tell you my long tempo story from last week. It's a sad story. So Coach gave me a long tempo run to do last Tuesday night, and I saw it on my calendar, and I recoiled in terror. It was a one hour and 30 minute tempo run. That's a 20 minute warm up, an hour of tempo, and a 10 minute cool down. That's a hard workout on a good day. And I was still leg sore from the previous week, which had culminated in a three hour long run. And I knew I couldn't do this tempo in the trails. The snow was too deep, too soft, too icky. So I'd have to do it on the road. And looking at my work calendar, I'd have to do it at night, in the dark, in the cold, on the road, with the cars. But I was committed, right? Consistency's my thing. I was committed to getting through this week and doing all the workouts because I knew this is the big part, the dark part of the training cycle, where there's a bit of a crushing load so that I'm ready to race on my target race date, which is April. So you have to do the work if you want the results. I haven't been running on the roads much. I've been trying to keep my training in the trails, where it's easier on my old legs, and I can take Ollie Wally the Killer Collie with me. So not only was this workout going to be hard, it was going to be different, a different leg motion, a different impact, a different stride. And when I hit the tempo part of the workout, I put too much coal in the furnace at first, like I always do, and ended up going too fast. Had to take a couple walk breaks, you know, back off. Uh, My legs were like cement. 
especially my quads. I had nothing. But I just kept backing off the base and taking walk breaks until I got it done. So I completed the workout. It was awful. I was way off my pace. My legs were killing me. I was sore the next day. But that's the whole point of training, to learn where you are. And I learned that I'm not in any kind of road racing shape. But that being said, I was happy with the effort, with getting out, with getting it done. And I knew that these kinds of workouts are the awful and hard workouts that stay with you for days. These, these are the key building blocks in successful training campaigns. So my friends, your assignment here is simple. Work a tempo run into your training each week and learn something about who you are. And now for today's featured interview. All right. So Rachel, give us a tour in the words on who you are and what you do. Oh, okay. So my name is Rachel Shuck. I run own next level nutrition. I work mostly with athletes to fine tune their eating slash nutrition to help them achieve whatever athletic goal it is they have in mind. Also, I should clarify and say, I also work with people that want to become athletes. So it's all relative. Mostly on the nutrition side, right? Yes. Yes. Right. And you mm-hmm. and I worked together for years. Mm-hmm. And we've met in the protein form, actually, at a race somewhere. I remember it. Yeah, it was uh, Idaho. Pocatello. Idaho. Yeah. Yep. The potato race. Yeah, we got a bag of potatoes for that race, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> I had to give it away because I'm like, what am I going to do with five pounds of potatoes on an airplane? Yeah, well, me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there was a guy there. There was a guy there who was like, oh, you don't want those? I'll take those. <laughs> All right. Okay. Win-win. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So people are looking at their diets this time of year. Type it into the Google machine. What's the best diet and what comes up? You got your, what is it? The low carb, no carb, South Yeah, beef. you've got it all. You've got your vegan, your keto, your, like you said, Mediterranean. And you know, the thing is, I'm not even going to knock any of those diets because in a way they all have merit on some level. But the thing that people run into is they want the quick fix and the the non-fun answer is all of those diets, every single one of them goes back to the fundamentals. And this is a running kind of podcast. So we know you want to be a good runner. You got to get the time on your feet. Like that's just a fundamental of running. And if you want to eat healthy, then you need to master the three fundamentals of any diet. And when I say diet using the fundamentals, I don't mean I'm going to be beach ready in two weeks. I mean, I'm going to get my life together. This is going to become a lifestyle. But like I said, even if you're doing the crash course thing, you're still going to have to put those three fundamentals in play. And so. And so those three fundamentals are. Okay. The first fundamental you will see with any of these diets is limited to no processed carbohydrates. Now, that does not mean no carbohydrates because carbohydrates are not inherently bad, but there are definitely quality levels of carbohydrates. So when I say processed carbs, I'm talking about refined flour, refined sugars, the ones where all the nutrients and things have been stripped and you're really not putting anything into your body that it can use. So that's fundamental number one. Fundamental number two, people hate me for this one, (laughs) limited to no alcohol. And Chris, we've been there, haven't we? (laughs) Well, you got to have a budget for that sort of thing. (laughs) Yes. And that's why I said limited. Most of us are are long distance runners. (laughs) Sure. You can do some things to to counterbalance it, but it it still needs to be uh, in moderation. There needs to be a plan for the alcohol if that's going to be part of the lifestyle. 
I was listening to an interview of uh, Lexi Pappas, who's uh, an Olympic runner. Okay. And she said uh, one of her coaches told her that a night out drinking was worth two weeks of training. I love a good glass of wine. I like a good beer, but it does undo a lot of the gains that we make just through diminishes protein synthesis. It messes up our gut bacteria. There's a lot of things it does that aren't so great Mm. when you're doing a big night out drinking. So yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have to train the next day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially doing endurance type running and then your electrolytes are all off too. There's all kinds of things that go wrong. So yeah. yeah. Mm. And then the third fundamental is lots of nutrient dense foods. So when I say nutrient dense foods, you've got to get your your nuts, your seeds, your fruits, your vegetables, your quality protein. And when I say quality protein, that could be from beans, nuts, seeds, also fish, eggs, free range meat, that kind of stuff. But high nutrient dense foods, low processed foods. It's the fundamental. I mean, every single one of these diets has that at its core. I was always surprised by the fact that it really has something to do with, but not as much as you think to do with the number of calories you're taking. That is a good point because everyone's tied into the calories and calories out. And I'm not going to say they don't matter because you, you can manipulate things through just calorie intake. But what we forget is that when we manipulate our blood sugar and our insulin and send our bodies on these yo-yo things, those types of things create fat storage. So eating your calories from fat, which won't spike blood sugar, is going to be different than eating your calories from processed carbohydrates. So if you look at the choice, it's eight o'clock at night, you're going to go ahead and eat something, right? Mm -hmm. You could eat a giant bowl of, I don't know, wild rice and steak tips or zucchini or whatever, Mm -hmm. or you could eat a can of chips and the can of chips may be less calories, but it's going to go directly to your fat stores. Yeah. And that goes back to the whole processed refined carbohydrates. Because when you think about a can of chips versus eating, let's just say a potato, well, a potato may be baked in the oven. A can of chips, it's been deep fried at this high temperature, destroying nutrients, changing how it affects our body. So, right. You can eat that real whole food, not really worry so much about the calories and probably be fine. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. If you're an athlete at some level, even at 20 miles a week or whatever it is, or a 20 minute walk every day, and you're eating whole food, you probably should don't have to worry about calories. Absolutely. And you know, Chris, I don't know, did we ever really focus on calories when we worked? I don't remember ever even looking at your calories. I was looking at what you were eating. No, I look at my calories just to be cognizant, right? Sure. Because the only reason to track when you're on a diet, track your foods, is so you can mm-hmm. see what you're eating, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it causes you to correct course whether you know it or not, right? Yeah. But I would be kind of blown away because I eat a lot of nuts, and mm-hmm. nuts have so many calories, right? They are calorie-dense food, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, they won't go to your waistline like other foods would not like the a- same amount of calorie. Yeah. Which brings up a point about eating whole foods, even something calorie dense like nuts. A lot of those whole foods are going to have fiber and we know fiber helps put on the brakes, slows the digestion down, slows everything down a little bit. So your body's not going haywire trying to keep up food with breaks. Nobody sits down and says, Oh my God, I ate so much broccoli. Like I just overeat the broccoli. Yeah. This doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> then why do we crave the food that's bad for us? That high processed food? Why do you have oh. a craving for chips? Well, I mean, you have to think about the time and the energy and the resources they put into creating foods 
that we crave because at a fundamental level, our brains are wired to crave sugar, salt, and fat. Because when you're finding that in the wild, that is what will sustain you and keep you going. But now they've figured out a way to just get that to our taste buds, but have no real nutritional value. Mm. Empty calories, they say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, made in a lab. They do a lot of research on all this food stuff. There's a lot of science that goes into it. Yeah. It's funny because you think about being a drug addict or an alcoholic, and you can stop doing that. You can go Mm -hmm. cold turkey on that. You can't go cold turkey on eating, right? So, so you can't say I'm not going to eat. You can, but yeah, that people won't fast. Last long. That's a thing, but yeah, yeah it's not long term. Yeah, fasting's huge right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I fasting's great, but yes, it's not a long term solution. So, how do you ease that transition? Right, somebody's noticing that they're moving. They're all pizza and chips all the time. How do you move that transition? Because your body fights. Your it body does. And your brain it fights. Does. Oh yeah, you get wired. To that's what you need. That's what you crave. The non-fun answer, I'm just a ball of fun today, (laughs) is you have to do it slow. It's a process if you want to do it successfully. What I recommend for a lot of people is we just start with one meal, usually breakfast. And we're like, let's change this. And then if we can be consistent with breakfast. Now, some people that are just all in and they can just do it. But that's actually very rare. But If we can just change breakfast, what we've done, we started some consistency and then we've started some momentum. And you know what? You're feeding your gut changes the bacteria in there too. And what those bacteria crave will change. So the healthier foods that you eat, you're starving out the bad bacteria. And now the good bacteria is going to start wanting the good things. But it's a very long involved process. (laughs) Does breakfast work better because you're sort of starting in a fasted state? I think that is part of it. So clean slate, you haven't screwed anything up too. So I think there's a mental aspect also where people like, oh, I messed this up. So just forget the whole day. So that's the kind of the mental side. If you start with breakfast, well, you can't mess anything up. But also, yes, being in a fasted state, I think is good because your body has been working overnight, sort of metabolizing all those things. So you talk about your gut bacteria. Is there a way to reprogram those without, is there any shortcut there? Well, you can definitely reprogram it. I wouldn't say there's any shortcuts. There are things you can do. Adding fermented foods is huge. So that's your kimchi and your sauerkraut and all of those things. The best thing to do is to starve out the bad bacteria, which means cutting out the processed stuff. And you can do supplements, you know, probiotic supplements. Those can certainly help. It's a good boost. And you can do some herbal things too. So, I mean, yeah, there are tools you can use to help it along, but you still, at the end of the day, there's still some work you have to put in. Yeah, it's all diet-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I don't know what it was, a five-day or a 10-day course of probiotics that you turned me on to. Those were fantastic. Oh, that yeah, was, those are good. Yeah, that was the best exit from antibiotics that I've ever had. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I like that one just because it is, if you've done a round of biotics it's, or antibiotics, it's a very powerful to kind of get you back on track. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that would be something people could do. And especially this time of year when there isn't that much fresh vegetables around to rebuild your biome. Normally I could grab stuff out of the ground, essentially. That's a yeah. good starting point to rebuild your biome. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you said that. That made me think of another piece of that is, so you need those probiotics, which is so important. But when you were talking about grabbing stuff out of the ground, that stuff that you're getting, like your apples, well, not that's out of the ground, but like your carrots, those are your prebiotics. So that's like, if you think of your probiotics, 
you think of your gut, you've got this bacteria and they're your little pets, right? But you got to feed those pets. And so when you eat something like a carrot, that's your prebiotic, that's your pet food Mm. that it needs. So, yeah. Yeah. I also think picking stuff fresh from the garden, I think that carries a lot of hitchhikers along with it as well. Oh yeah. I think it does. That's a weird thing because I think it's good. There's some other research that says, oh my gosh, no, that's terrible. Yeah. But that's always how it goes, right? So if you've done it and it works for you, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's the dirt and the bugs. That's what's mm-hmm. good for you. That's right. We need dirt. It's good for us to be in the dirt. Yeah. Whereas the stuff you get in the store has been all washed and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's been washed and it's been in a truck. And it's, I mean, by the time you get it, it's seven, 10 days old. Who knows? Straight yeah. from your garden is fantastic. After you fix your breakfast, uh, what's next? I'm methodical. We go breakfast. And then we go lunch. And you know what I've found is a lot of times that by the end of like them sort of changing breakfast and lunch and lunch can often carry over to dinner is they've got the momentum going on their own where I don't even really have to work on dinner. It just happens. What's a gold star breakfast? I like any breakfast that has all of those things we just talked about. So quality protein. So people did something like farm fresh eggs and maybe they throw some spinach or zucchini or something in there. I think that's great. An avocado on the side. Smoothies are good too. I like those because they're easy for people. Yeah. Yeah. Throw in some vegetables, some fruit, a little bit of protein powder. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm laughing because I don't think I even ate an avocado till I was probably in my mid thirties. Really? And and now we live on them. Isn't that funny? (laughs) I mean, they just, there weren't avocados in New England. I don't remember ever having them as kids. Sure. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And now we eat three or four a day. Now they're a staple. Yeah, because yeah. they got that healthy fat. You can mm-hmm. just feel it, right? They mm-hmm. just and they fill you up, and it's then they're yummy and it's great. That's they're what I have filling. for breakfast every morning. I love it. Yeah, they're filling and they are nutrient dense. They've got all kinds of the healthy fats, the minerals, more potassium than a banana. Like you really can't go wrong with an avocado. So what's a good lunch? Um, and, and wait, let's ask this question: Is mm-hmm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner the old industrial uh, oh, complex schedule? Yeah. Is that the right schedule? For a while there, they were telling us we should eat every couple hours, right? I, the, I know, I know. It, you could lose your mind trying to follow all the advice. So here's my philosophy. If we get you eating real whole foods, and I stole this from somebody else, so I can't claim any originality for this, but then you eat when, and the acronym stands for when hunger ensues naturally. Because if you are eating the right foods, your hunger cues, they work. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, for some, that's exactly how they need to do it. Some people need breakfast, AM snack, lunch, PM snack, dinner. Some people just need breakfast and dinner. Yeah. And the snacks are important too. Mm-hmm. During the day, I usually default to fruit. I'm a fruit mm-hmm. guy. Depending on the fruit, it can be very high sugar. It's not bad. It's just high sugar. And that gives you craving. Sure. Fruit is, um well, and you can pair fruit with things too to help slow that down a little bit which I know you like nuts. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm yeah. eating. That's my mm-hmm. 10, 11 o'clock in the morning snack would be a handful of nuts uh, with some berries or some fruit. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And I think when people look at the advice too, we just forget that we're all so fundamentally the same, but yet uniquely different in our situations. And so to say one way is better than the other, it just, it doesn't make sense because if you're on your feet 12 hours a day moving around, you might require multiple snacks. Just every situation is unique. Yeah. So one of the things that I get in trouble with, I see people getting in trouble with is the dinner sort of mental and physical expectation where they're 
driving home from work or whatever, and they show up at home and they're ravenous, right? Yeah, that's a legit problem. And the struggle with eating healthy is the preparation that it takes. Right. So Because you show up at home, you're ravenous. You're still an hour away from eating yep. something mm-hmm. because you got to yeah. make healthy. And that's when bad decisions are made. That's when bad <laughs> decisions are made. And because crock pot, rice cooker, I'm a huge fan of the Instapot. Have the proper tools or have the proper planning. Or I think it's great if people can just use tools to, I'm going to call it cheating. It's not, but we have done this in the past. We just order from certain food companies where we know the food is fresh and clean. And all we have to do is pop it in the oven Mm. when we know we're going to have a busy week or something like that. What are some sort of handheld snacks that you could have in the house so that you're not reaching for the cookies when you get that wave of ravenous when you walk through the door and and have to cook some broccoli? Vegetables are always good. You can always do some vegetables and hummus or celery and like nut butter or anytime you can incorporate vegetables as a snack, like that's just a huge win. So that's a good one. You can also do the nuts or fruit. I don't think it's good. Just kind of like you said, it's fine. Some people can do an apple and be held over. A lot of people, all it does is make them hungry. Yeah, just open the floodgates. <laughs> it just really depends on how your unique situation. And if you eat an apple, are you good? Okay, well, then you can do that. That strategy works for you. Yeah. But, um, what I'll do sometimes, and this is a tip from Coach, probably came from you originally, is I'll have a big glass of some sort of nut milk, mm. uh, typically almond milk. I like the chocolate almond milk. Shoot me, it's got carbs in it. but Yeah, I don't like the uh, processed sugar in it, but... <laughs> But the alternative is uh, a block of cheese or whatever I'm going to eat instead. So I, um, if it works for you, drink a glass of oat milk and that sort of fills you up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think this is a good time for a smoothie too, for a lot of people. Just if you can throw a few little things in the blender and sip on that. Perfect. Yeah. Right. Cause that Mm -hmm. for my smoothies, those are going to be mostly uh, nut milk anyhow. Oh, that's true. I'm making those out of almond milk typically. So are there any nut milks that you approve of? I don't really have a problem with any of the alternative milks, oat milk, hazelnut milk, rice milk, nut milk, but I am very big on people need to read the labels because a lot of those milks have added sweeteners that they don't necessarily need. If you're drinking chocolate almond milk, you know what you're getting. You know there's sweeteners in it. But if you're just trying to be healthy and drink a nut milk, then make sure you read the ingredients because nine times out of 10, they will have processed sugar as an added ingredient. Yeah. And believe it or not, you have to do the same thing with dried fruit. You have to do the same thing with nuts. Mm -hmm. It just blows me away how much sugar is snuck into foods. It's crazy. I'm like dried fruit by its nature is already sweet. And yet nine times out of 10 again. Yeah. I have this conversation with Yvonne all the time where she's like, oh, this stuff is healthy. I go read, read the ingredients. What's the first ingredient? (laughs) sucrose oh right sucrose table sugar exactly (laughs) yeah the people who we deal with the people we know are are athletes of some form or another what's the interplay between nutrition and athleticism because if you listen to what the athlete nutrition market says right you have to do a pre-fuel you have to do a during fuel you have to do a post-fuel a recovery fuel right and they're probably selling you a product but yeah yeah. and they're selling (laughs) you milk and protein powder Mm -hmm. and all this Mm -hmm. other crap what's the reality bio-individuality that is the reality because some people do better pre-fueled not only bio-individuality but what are you training for and what are your goals because you're training for an ultra 
So if you go out and run fasted at a pretty slower pace, I'm like, probably you're going to be fine. You need to even come back, but I don't know that you need to be shoving anything down your gullet beforehand. Would it hurt you if you did? No. But if your goal is to put on 10 pounds of muscle mass, well, you might want to do things differently. Yeah. And I think it's like you said, it depends on what you're training for and who you are. Because definitely, if I can remember running those fast marathons, you're at a very high burn rate for three and a half hours. Sure. And then you're glycogen. You need fuel. And you know it if you don't do it. But with an ultra, you're at a low burn, right? It's like a wood stove. Um, Exactly. So what I got is I got a bag with a almond butter and honey sandwich cut up into pieces. Again, if you're training for a fast marathon, you're probably going to want to be topped off before race day with all your glycogen stores. And so of course you'll carb up, but do you need that every time you train? No. <laughs> yeah. And and I would say everybody has a different set point. I mean, I know mm-hmm. people that train hundred percent, like some of these ultra runners where they're, they're doing a gel every 20 minutes. Oh right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they like, can do oh, that. <laughs> God, how can you do that? I'd be sick like an hour in. It's dependent on who you are and, and what you need. Mm-hmm. But I would say you can play with that in your training. That's exactly where you should play with that is your dress rehearsals. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And try to find the edge, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if three gels works for you, yeah, try it with two, right? If a gel, maybe replace that gel with, uh, I don't know, something else, something healthier. Right? Sure. I like real food gels that you make yourself. And a lot of people have really great results with those, but doesn't mean that's for everyone. Yeah. Know? But try to find that edge. Cause I think a lot of it is um, psychological. Oh my gosh. So much of what we do is center our head. It's a powerful, yeah. powerful thing. <laughs> that big thing on our shoulders. Mm-hmm. What Kurt Vonnegut would call a dog's breakfast, six <laughs> pounds of meat. <laughs> Yeah, the bowling right, ball so, on our neck. Yeah. So, what's our advice for uh, people this spring to get nutritionally sound? Well, my advice is to practice the fundamentals, but don't try to do them all at once because that kind of sets you up for failure for some. Uh, it could be overwhelming. I think you try to master one fundamental at a time. So, maybe you drink three or four beers every night. Maybe work on cutting that down. Just start small. I like the breakfast idea because that's like that theory about making your bed, right? Yeah. If, if you can start the day by making your bed, it's uh, you've already got a win under your belt. Yeah, you've set the tone. Mm-hmm. You've set the tone, right? Yeah. So I like that breakfast. So if you can nail breakfast every day, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of people. That's why people do their runs in the morning, right? Because they are, they do their workout in the morning because it's uh, <laughs> yeah, you get it done and and it's not hanging over your head all day and you and you feel good about it. Yep. Good. What are you working on? You're in um, school, aren't you? I am in school. Right now I am working on molecular biology of the cell and it is fascinating. Ooh, <laughs> yummy. Yeah, it's crazy mitochondria. stuff. Mitochondria. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, runners, mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let you get back to life. I'm going to go okay. do my run. Okay. Enjoy your run. I will. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Memories and notebooks. Now, now is all you have, folks. So I was going to type memories and regrets, but my fat old fingers came up with memories and egrets, which I think is a great visual. Who doesn't love a tall bird that walks in the marshes on stilts and spears fishes and frogs? What a great example of specificity in evolution.
That's better than those birds that eat bugs off a wildebeest. Memories and egrets. Anyhow, my wife was at home a couple days this week, and she goes on these cleaning binges, and she was working her way through one of the numerous piles of junk left over in our house, like piles of rocks left by receding glaciers. The glaciers, in this case, are two grown children and a full life of family and work and life and stuff that has swept over us in the last 30-plus years. And she ran into a few boxes of my stuff. And these were boxes from the office of a job that I was in for five or six years. I've had a few jobs in my life. I've had a few offices. I've learned that these jobs and work in general, work for money, is ephemeral at best. And as cynical as it sounds, don't collect too much stuff in your office and be ready to move. The office these boxes came from was a nice office. It was a big office. I had a door. I had a window where the landscapers would come and bother my calls with their weed whackers on Tuesday mornings. It was a satellite office, so it was just me, a couple other people. Very peaceful. I had a big desk. I backed it up against a wall and hung my stuff, my marathon metal rack, my quilt that my mom made me, had a bookcase full of books and notebooks, a few knickknacks. And when I left that office, I threw a bunch of stuff away. At least I was smart enough to do that. I knew I wouldn't need any of the job-specific stuff. You never do. And I knew from previous jobs that this was not a home. This was a place to work, a temporary place, a way station on the Silk Road of career and work. I packed up my books and my brick bat into old copy paper boxes, and I threw it in my truck, and I walked away. I had a lot of books. I'm a book guy. I brought them home, dropped them into an open spot on the floor in the living room. They stacked neatly, like large bricks in a temporary wall. And yes, these boxes from four years ago were the ones my wife ran into in her cleaning expedition. So what do you do with stuff like this? I don't have an office anymore. I mean, I have a home office, and some of this brick bat might eventually find a home there. But as of today, it was in the way of the great clean. So not sure how this works in modern times, but in my career, you had notebooks. You carried a notebook with you to take notes. And I had maybe a dozen of these notebooks of various shapes and sizes from my time at this company. Notebooks of three years as a struggling startup and then another five years as a acquired business unit. Paging through these notebooks is fruitless. <laughs> They're full of cryptic notes about meetings with companies, prospects, partners, employees, and bosses, and none of that stuff is important anymore. All those people were acquaintances. They weren't friends. They weren't family. And the notebooks are also full of first drafts of the articles, many of which would become topics of discussion on my blog or in this podcast or in one of my books. And most of these, at least the ones that have any life, they're captured digitally somewhere. They're transcribed. And there may also be the odd poem, which is cringeworthy at best for an old boomer like me, there are endless ideas in these notebooks, ideas for businesses and books and projects. I'm a big one for scribbling stuff out onto paper as a way to see if it comes alive or recedes back into the grayness of thought. And of course, there are the lists, the to-do lists, the projects, the self-improvement lists, endless attempts 
to organize my life around some defining purpose. But I'm past the point where I really care about any of those lists. There was never the big aha moment when something in those lists changed my life. Those lists got me through a day or a week or a project. I leaned on them like a walking stick on a muddy trail. So I had not meant for this post to sound so morose. It's not intended to be. My intent was to share some insight with you, to reinforce the fact that life is short and moments matter, and all you really have is today. Things at work that seem so important are, in fact, not important at all. In a year or two years or three years, the sting of whatever vexes you today, you won't even remember it. And there was a mild sadness when I looked at this stack of notebooks and made that quick decision to toss them all in the recycle bin. But it was an easy decision. Maybe 10 years ago, I would have kept them and never looked at them. To keep them would be like collecting all the dust and dirt from every road you've ever traveled. All these things, these interactions are part of the fabric of your life. There's no reason to hoard them. They are with you. To hang on to them, they'll bury you. They'll bury your spirit under a crushing weight of baggage. Let them go. Be here now. Look at what you can do with today. Like like Marie Kondo would say, maybe you can take those notebooks and thank them. Give them a little blessing and send them on their way. Because life must go on. Their time has passed. You, you can celebrate that time but not by dragging the cardboard boxes of the past with you into your celebration of the future. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we've eaten a good breakfast that allowed us to get through to the end of episode 4-449 of the Run Run Live podcast. I always like talking to Rachel, and she's actually doing some work with my wife right now, and that's kind of weird because I'm on the other side for a change. I'm not the one on the diet. So next week, I'm going to talk to a runner who's also a writer of young adult fantasy fiction. Yeah, interesting stuff. He said he liked my new Apocalypse podcast, after the Apocalypse, but I think he might just be shining me on. By the way, thank you for all the uh, listens and the reviews on iTunes for my new podcast. I appreciate it. The writing and editing of that has been very satisfying. And on the horizon, I'm coordinating a call with Tom Grilk, who is uh, one of the leaders of the BAA here in Boston, a real mover and a shaker in the, in the Boston Athletic Association. And if you have not listened to the BAA podcast, I think it's called the Boston Marathon Podcast, I would recommend it. A couple of Tom's interviews, Tom does the interviewing in that, and a couple of these interviews are just outstanding. Uh, Tatiana McFadden is amazing. And of course, Des Linden's Boston, her win in 2018, uh, she tells that to to Tom through the lens of a couple of insiders, and it's amazing. There aren't that many episodes, I think 18, and it appears to have pod faded, but the ones that are out there are good, and Tom does a great job. He's a very polished guy. So I'm looking forward to Massachusetts getting its act together on the vaccine so I can get back into an airplane maybe, maybe go somewhere. 
Uh, Boston, the marathon has been pushed out till October, and I'm not sh- frankly, I'm not sure whether I'll run or not. At this point, I'm stuck at the end of an age group, and you may remember I wrote a post on this probably 10 years ago, right? Probably 10 years ago today called Crazy Eights, and the qualifying standards are linear, but your ability loss is nonlinear. <laughs> so when you hit that age group that ends with an eight, Qualifying is really hard, especially with the new times. I'd need to run a 335 marathon to qualify, and that's just the standard. If I wanted to beat the standard, I'd need to run like a 330, uh, which doesn't sound that hard in theory, but it's uh, I think it's beyond my grasp at this point. The thing is, uh, you know, in a scant 12 months, I get another 15 minutes, which reels it back into the realm of possibility. And you never know. Uh, It's such a heavy lift right now. I'm not sure I have the mental capacity to do it again. So we opened this podcast today with the concept of consistency. So I think it's only appropriate that we close it with a discussion of habits and to-do lists. And I had an interesting philosophical conversation with myself this week. I had it with myself because there's no one else to talk to in the apocalypse, except maybe the dog. But his philosophy is much more rudimentary and deals mostly with balls and runs and occasional belly rubs. And frankly, that's what I like about dogs. Theirs is a more honest philosophy than we will ever achieve. But anyhow, I was thinking about habits and task lists. And of course, what precipitated this was a few recent experiences and some environmental stresses, like my job, keeping me scrambling, scrambling to keep up with a seemingly endless flow of tasks. And my current training plan, my workouts, they're getting into that dark place where the workouts are apocalyptically challenging. And we're deep in the heart of darkness winter-wise here in New England. And I know that's a snapshot of life, you know, a point in time, a seasonal cycle. I know this, but it still causes pressure. A long day on the video calls with clients who have intractable problems that require my attention, my accountability, my empathy, followed by a long, hard workout in the dark and the snow, left with a scant hour of consciousness to maybe grab a quick dinner, read a chapter in a book, and fall into a worried sleep, only to do it all again the next day. And like I said, I know this. We all have these times, these dark places. That's the seasonal nature of life. And we develop tools to deal with these dark places, right? Tools to survive so we can enjoy the sunny times. And one of these tools is habits. Habits allow us to get more done more efficiently. If you can habitize yourself to get up, do the work, be rigorous about the tasks in front of you, you can get through to the other side. But this week, in the philosophical discussion with myself, I questioned the outcome premise. We build these habits so that we can get things done, but why? What does getting these things done have to do with anything important? Isn't this just an attempt to automate rote and joyless activities so that we can get through them faster without giving as much? And it starts to feel like you're bailing the ocean with a toy bucket. 
The justification in optimizing the task list and building habits is to be able to free up time to do the things you want to do. In my philosophical discussion with myself, I realized that this justification was just another form of, let's face it, a classic lie. (laughs) The classic lie is that by making you more efficient, we're going to free up time to, quote, do more important things. How many times have you heard that? Whether by choice or rule, that's really not what happens, though, is it? What happens is that as soon as we lift up one plastic pail of tasks out of the ocean, another pail full of tasks flows in right behind to fill the void until you're at capacity again. And you're not doing more important things. You're doing more of the same stuff faster with less attention and no joy. Now, one saving grace of the habit hamster wheel is that it promotes or creates consistency. And there are many important goals that require consistency. For instance, if you're training for an event, consistency trumps everything else. If you're saving money for a worthy thing, again, consistency. It trumps everything. There's power in consistency. Habit promotes consistency. But there's also a mindless spinning of the endless wheel that you have to put a foot on or you will habit yourself into a joyless grave. So as you and I get on with our weeks, let us not be a slave to habit. Let's be brave enough not to finish a task list. Let's look at these things and ask why, and then maybe say no. Find those things that give you joy, not pleasure, but joy. And use your magnificent to-do lists to schedule a few of these things into your habit hamster wheel. Take an hour and a half in the middle of a perfectly good work day and go out for a run in the sun. No one will ever know. When they ask you why you didn't finish X or Y, you say, I've had to prioritize recently and I just haven't gotten to it, which is the truth. And then maybe if you're extra Machiavellian, you can ask a follow-up question. Is there any way I can get some help with this stuff? I hate to leave it unfinished. That's it. Do your best. Make sure you remember to stick up for yourself. And uh, I will see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry.